Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, with that, let's talk some talk, and then there'll be more talk about talk afterwards. Thank you. Is that close enough? Oh. I'm wow, I've been on that one. Okay. <clears throat> I'm Natalie Mitchell. I'll be playing Emily. And I'm Amelia Mm-hmm. Oh, Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Amelia Harris, and I'll be playing Marsha. <clears throat> Marsha's love story. My average relationship with a man, actually talking to each other, loving each other, relating to each other, sleeping with each other, is usually one to two weeks in duration. The amount of time I spend feeling rejected, crying over it, not seeing him but living it out, is three to four years. You know, when, when I was going out uh, with Emil Reinhardt, with my doctor, he said it sounded like a three-penny novel. My doctor says my life is a soap opera. No, mine said three-penny novel. Soap opera. Uh, his grasp of dialect is different. So anyway, the point is that my syndrome is just the opposite of yours. I mean, the most important thing for me is what I trump up before I sleep with a man. Like, what was going on when I met Emil Reinhardt? The perfumed missives? The secret assignations and the ricocheted rendezvous? When we finally did make it, I mean, it was great, but I really like the foreplay better than the act itself. I mean, then I went on for two years moaning and groaning for all that it was worth. And, you know, it wasn't worth that much. I'm more involved in the aftermath and after birth. You're more involved in the pregnancy. What does it mean? (sighs) Take Timothy Cullen. Okay, you met Timothy Cullen. You said this might be a healthy specimen. I'm giving him a chance. He's Irish. He has a mustache. Dark glasses. Yeah, French clothes. I mean, he dances. You had a whole thing about how healthy you thought he was. Soon as he met you, he wanted to go to bed with you. And you wouldn't go to bed with him, right? Then I started building up a dread. Mm -hmm. The actual pattern. The actual pattern is the first week he loves you, you don't love him. Second week he gets the idea you don't love him and he stops loving you. You get the idea he's not loving you and you start loving him. Third week, zero. Where are we now, six months later? It ends with you're still in love with him because it's unresolved. He feels rejected. He finally gets the message you don't want any dirty part of him, cunning as he is. Man. You know what sticks in my mind? Do you remember there was one night in the dom? Mm. It was the first week when he was in love with me, and his eyes didn't leave the nape of my neck the whole entire evening. Every time I sensed him coming near me, I zooped up and sat somewhere else. Ugh, as long as you didn't zeke up, you're okay. Ugh, I just couldn't stand the pressure, the clinging. He was clinging? He was clinging. He was calling me up constantly. What are you doing tonight? Where will you be tomorrow? Where are you every minute of the day? Okay, remember the night you called him 25 times? More than 25 times. He was out all night, you didn't know where, and you kept calling him like every two seconds. And then the next morning was the big breakup. 
Hmm. He found his Marie. Marie, the dawn is breaking. Marshy's heart. Go on. Where? I'll be back any second. Well, what if what if Zeke Sutherland fell in love with you? I mean, what would happen? Even Zeke Sutherland made me nervous when he liked me. But I couldn't get too nervous because he got so nervous so fast I didn't have time. Well, I got nervous to death with Michael Christie. I rejected him. Then you have the same pattern, that the actual relationship is minimal in the gestalt of the whole thing. For me, the actual relationship is something to get over with, so I can drop into the mud, and my heart can pound, dialing a certain number I'm not supposed to dial. That's the essence of it. So, all they really are are vehicles for acting things out? Instruments on which to play my problems. Who said that? Me. (laughs) Very good! Okay, if art makes visible that which is invisible, you can imagine what problems do. Emily and Marsha play a game. Okay. Sydney Green Street or Peter Lorre? Sydney Green Street. Joe DiMaggio... Or Arthur Miller. Joe DiMaggio, he went to the funeral. Yeah, he organized the whole thing. Jack Kennedy or... What about me? You'll get your turn. You'll be asking me. Jack Kennedy or Fidel Castro? That's very close. I mean, when you first said it, I didn't think so, but, you know, it's actually really very close. Neither did I when I first said it. You know, I think Fidel. Fidel castrated? Yeah. Jack Ruby or, or Lee Oswald? Lee Harvey. George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? Are you kidding? George Washington with his teeth coming out every night and the wig coming off? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hoagie Carmichael or Stokely Carmichael? Black Power. <clears throat> Susan Sontag or Marisol? Oh, Susan Sontag. Marisol would be too passive. Norman Mailer or Philip Roth? I've never met Philip Roth. It's an interesting choice. Yeah, I've never met Philip Roth, but I think it would probably be Miller. It would. (laughs) Marsha and Emily talk about Nathan, Philippe, Andy Warhol, and Nancy Drew. Which of your abortions was your favorite? Mm. My Puerto Rican one. I loved it. We had a great time with that abortion. Yeah, I mean, it was like a made-to-order vacation. Cut-to-order, you might say. Very safe, no pain. Except that I was really scared shitless because it was my first. I mean, I was very brave. Do you remember? And I was very good to you. I played the husband. You didn't even know me when I had mine. Philippe was a scoundrel. I mean, he was the father of my child. He had lived with me for almost three years, and on the night of the abortion, he was screwing someone else. God, do you think you can throw away three years of your life? Yes. Are you asking the right person? (laughs) Yes. If someone who didn't know Philippe asked you to describe him, what would you say? I'd say he was a broken coil. That's really good. I mean, because he was so tense and yet so completely ineffectual. I mean, those are the two biggest things about him, his tension and his passivity. And this was your ideal man. (laughs) 
marvelous, a way to cut parsley. You know, Calder's wife taught it to me. Actually, no, it should be in a glass that's half the perimeter. How about turning down that Dionne Warwick? Oh, God, I love these lyrics. And when you can, and when you feel... And when you feel you can't accept the abuse you're taking, reach out for me. I'll see you through. I'll be there. See, it's really about us. It says to the guy, when you're broken in two, when you're weak and abused and you can't pick up your fucking feet off the floor, you're a total washout flunky failure, then what, huh? Just come to old Emily Brenson. She'll nurse you. She'll pick up you up all the pieces, right? I mean, Michael Christie, perfect example. I'm telling him to reach out for me. I'll see him through. If he wants a little bit of drink, I'll perpetuate his drunkenness and give him one because he can't accept the abuse he's taking. I mean, doesn't it make sense? It makes sense. Okay, let me ask you something. I want to know exactly what you think of the new dancing. I've been sitting here trying to analyze it. You know, do you realize that it makes the women equal to the man for the very first time? She doesn't have to follow him anymore. He doesn't control the rhythms. The music is something they share. She can express herself. Right. There. Now separate, but equal. The dancing is all about individual style. Also, popular opinion to the contrary, I think it has more to do with relating than the old kind of dancing did. You know those imitations you do of people dancing? Mm -hmm. You couldn't have done them with the old dancing. Mm, No. Now there's a rhythm and, and, and a generalized style to follow, but there, but still, the way Timothy Collin does something and the way Nathan Foss does it is completely unique. Whereas if they were foxtrotting or whatever the fuck it was we used to do, even the, the twist, it probably wouldn't have been that different. Okay, what else is involved? You know, like the women is dancing. Is she dancing for the man? No, I think she's dancing for the public. Hmm. And they're dancing out their relationship if they have one. Emily approaches her birthday. You know, I get a very scary feeling sometimes that I'm pushing myself into a corner. All of a sudden, I'm beginning to find everyone, except you and Vinny, very dull. We've set up such a stimulating, total, free, hysterical, intimate, intense relationship that I find it impossible to relate to other people. They leave me completely cold. If someone else comes into the house, I get annoyed because they cut down our communication. Hmm. Marsha and Emily's last day on the beach. Obviously, it's not the end of East Hampton. I mean, a lot of people are going to stay on. The ones who've bought houses and made all that fucking investment. They're the ones who ruined it. Let's quickly dissect what the East Hampton beach scene is, okay? First of all, there are those perennial people who come out every summer, the couples with babies who have a certain amount of money, and when they're on the beach, they're with friends who are just like them, couples with children. And if they have guests for the weekend, they're men who bring their girlfriends. That's one category. Then there's the 30-year-old woman who's fucked around. Maybe she's been married. She has a house out here with her girlfriends, and she's been beachcombing the week for, the weekend, for the weekend guests. She's looking for a man up the wrong tree. 
Then there are the single men who come out here in groups. I haven't seen any of that. You know, I've been buoying myself up here in the sand for great action, lest I sink. Oh, he's not bad. The bald midget guy with the orange shirt and the orange cigarette. (laughs) He's leaving. Yeah, that's what's not bad about him. Do you like bald men? My father was bald. I didn't ask you that. You mean in like a sensor as a sensory thing? No. Do you? I'm beginning to. It's a good thing, too. You know, Vinny is right about this. Definitely being a middle-class family coupled situation. I mean, I think the real emotional, intellectual upper class are people who don't group to begin with. But the beach is still a nice collection of people, basically very varied, very heterogeneous. It's, It's nothing like, say, Jones Beach, where people are just strangers. No, it's a personality beach. It's a party. I mean, with the pretense of being a beach, a kind of fantasy charade of people's projections. Like, look. Look, when I see Kira walk by, what I see is a poster flyer for his show. (laughs) Look at him. He's walking up and down like it's a cocktail party. He's only making contact with people to revitalize the image he has about himself. It becomes so-and-so painter, or so-and-so author, or so-and-so who may have problems with his... Or not so-and-so, a man who may have problems with his wife. But you still very well might meet somebody when you're out here by yourself. Yeah, if there's anyone to meet. Hey... I don't blame you for liking this guy, the guy with the nose. Mm. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? One of the nicest guys on the beach. If not the. I mean, he's not too hairy. He's not too old. He's the ideal man. I mean, he shouldn't be completely bald. He shouldn't have to wear glasses, like, all the time. He shouldn't be too tired after dinner. He, he shouldn't lose too many jobs out inside of a year. Shouldn't smoke more than um, six pack of cigarettes a day. <laughs> he shouldn't forget your name more than every now and then. He shouldn't be too queer. He shouldn't have too many alcoholic beverages or, or, or too many crying jags. Shouldn't have too much possessive resistance. Mm. Or too many pairs of the same tassel loafers. <laughs> or too many Lacoste shirts. What's that? You know those tennis shirts with the alligator on them? He shouldn't have too many friends named Shep or, or Mirren. Armand. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't wear white socks with his tassel loafers. No, he shouldn't smoke pot all day and sleep until five in the afternoon. (sighs) You know I'd really like to talk about love for a second, Marshy. Because I've said a lot of very 29-year-old drunken things this summer. But I can say right now that I don't want any more married men. And I, I don't want any weak men. And I don't want any men that I've ever known before. I think I'm just about ready to find someone who's healthy enough to take the chance of getting married to me. Amen. (laughs) That was fantastic. Uh, And now Linda will come up and take some questions and further illuminate us on the story behind the book. 
Weren't they great though? Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, well, Allison pretty much told you the history of the book, that it was first published in 68, had a long hiatus, and New York Review picked it up and just republished it this week. And as she, uh, these are the things that I was going to say, but that it was at first published as pure fiction that I had invented. I don't know if I could have invented some of those conversations. But um, I was very unhappy at the time that they refused to uh, present it for what it was. And was both happy and not so happy when it came out that these were three people, that I was one of the three people. <laughs> Made it a little more complicated. But um, it... Um, the, the late 60s was a time where so much was happening, so much was changing in music, in art. Um, there was a whole reality gestalt going on of, of um, artists painting from photographs. And, and Rauschenberg said something about being interested in being the space between life and art. And I think this sort of fell into that whole way of thinking. Um, and it, it did it, it was sort of shocking in its day and now so much has happened including girls and, and Broad City and all that that um, it's seen, seen sort of as the progenitor or the grandma of those, those things um, but I'll be happy to answer any questions yes struck by a comment you made on, on dancing and is the woman dancing for the man you know, she's dancing for the public could you just riff on that a little bit more for me because I was <laughs> there's this poet Tagore who's yeah. a philosopher um, I really appreciate um, Nussbaum and he was motivated looking at dance and so I've been thinking a lot of dance and, hmm. and women in dance and how western culture is really created a perversion in a certain sense, especially with ballet, which has its beginnings. I mean, we, we turn ballet into a way to prostitute women and, and as express an aristocracy. But it began with this real yogic, um, these wonderful cultures in India, and it began as a poetic expression, a way to commune with God. So I think of dance, and I'm thinking of, it just struck me what you were saying about the woman. She doesn't dance for the man, she dances for the public. And I'm just wondering if, if that isn't an expression of I guess you could look at it that way, but it was such a radical break from the kind of, you know, man woman holding each other, following prescribed steps, that it was a like everything else that was happening then. It was it was completely revolutionary in terms of everybody was quote doing their own thing, and you know the man and woman were opposite each other, but they were doing what what they felt the music was meaning to them. As long as it feels like you were expressing a public politic, as if because feminism now is in such a cramped place, right? And I think you had a freedom of expression and a, a, a beauty in your vision that maybe needs to regenerate what's going on with women today. And I'm just, I just yeah. feel something. I feel breath and death, and I feel a prettiness pop out of that work that just is missing today. And I just, huh. you know, I, I want to thank you so much for. Because this closeness and intimacy we have with women, and this nascent expression of having some force in the world, you know, for the first time, 
it's exciting. So your work brings that excitement that sometimes, sometimes is lacking in the expression of values. Well, that's nice to hear. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how, how conscious were you three of the tape recorder as time went on? What, you, forget, you forget that it's on. It, it was just always on. You know, we took it to the beach. It was everywhere. There's, there's one thing where the male character and Emily go out together without Marsha and they take the tape recorder with them and then when when um, when they come back Marsha plays the tape so she hears what they were saying about her mm-hmm. so it was like another character and yet it was a very invisible visibly invisible Juan hey, Linda. Uh, thank you uh, so I'm going to uh, express my ignorance here, but, but could you tell us who originally published it? And then I assume since it was such a creative and different idea from what they call fiction, uh, that it wasn't assigned, an idea assigned by some editor somewhere, so that you must have gone through process to get it accepted and so on. I don't know how difficult Yeah, that a was. lot of rejections. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? A lot of people said repellently raunchy was one of the terms. Uh, but this one editor at Putnam really fought for it, and he had to fight for it. And um, he got it through, but with, with all these restrictions. You know, no, no, this is purely made up. This is not tape recorded. It was, it was a long... How long did it take from the time that you got, felt you had a fairly finished product to the time that uh, it was accepted for publication? Was it short? Well, no, it went around and around and around the publishing world for, you know, I, six months, maybe more. <laughs> James. Linda, um, could you talk a bit about the generation of where the idea came from? You know how it sort of began, and how you began with the tape recorder. I mean, where did it actually start? Well, I, I remember the moment that I got the idea. I mean, I can sort of visually see it all these decades later in my apartment. And I don't think I was consciously aware that it was, it was part of what was happening in in other ways and other media. Um, but I had a tape recorder. I would use it the way people do, you know. I tape recorded my grandfather's Russian stories. Um, it just seemed to me, I knew that we were go- I was going away for this period of time, that these other people would be there, and it just struck me that it would be a fantastic thing to do. It was just really there. <laughs> there. So did you have a plan in advance that you were going to publish something? Oh, yeah, it was to do a book, definitely, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did your friends know? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, they had to sign every page of the manuscript as a release. So. Where are they now? Um, well, they've changed. They've changed. Their lives have changed a lot. Um, the gay character has been married twice and has many children and grandchildren. Wow. And uh, the actress is still acting. She's in L.A. So they're still very much around. Yes. I think somebody already asked this, but when knowing your friends before the recording and then hitting record, just in the beginning stages, did you see them change? 
try to sound more intellectual no. or anything. No. <laughs> no. They were that way. They were. <laughs> they were funny and they were smart. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think you were doing something new with the forum, like yeah. new journalism? What was, what was your thinking process? Uh, what you know, it's a long time ago, so it's really hard to really track it, but... Um, I knew it hadn't been done. I think Andy Warhol published his tape book uh, before mine, but that I was working on it earlier. And he kind of acknowledged that I was doing it before. And he made no attempt to shape it into anything. It was just the raw tape, and you know he wouldn't ever want to you know, make it into a novel or anything. But I, I was, you know, in that culture, I, I was very much more in the art world than in any literary world so I, I knew what was happening and I saw a lot more happening there than in in books so you were thinking of it as performance art then? Or I wouldn't have used that term but I probably was in a way how did the raunch level compare with um, the raunchiness of men's work at that time I don't know. Um, Portnoy's complaint came out a year or two later, you know. And, and Philip Roth recently said something about that. He was—I forget the two words—but he was both embarrassed and proud that he had done it. That's yeah. misquoting it, um, and that caused a sensation, you know, the masturbation in there. This, so, you know, there, there was, there have always been erotic books. And I just wondered, I was wondering if, if the rejection or the criticism of the repellent launch or whatever, how much of that was tied to the fact that you were female, that the characters having these conversations were female versus... I don't really, th I don't really think so. No. I know you. <laughs> I know that's your thing. <laughs> um, did you have an idea of the storyline before you hit record? Or did you hit record and listen? The storyline sort of emerged. I, I thought of it as plotless, that it was just going on. But looking at it when it was finished, there was definitely a beginning, middle, and end. And so it came to you more after you were listening to Dur Yeah. 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 Now, did I read some of the original twelve characters? There, well, there was an, uh, not a specific number, but I thought there would probably be five or six. So, and did then you when eliminate I eliminate some characters, oh yeah, well, three, uh, no, yeah, but all the three voices speaking for no. more than three characters. No. no, there was one character who was talked about a lot, who was actually a combination of two people. But um, the three are the three. But when I tried to trans let alone you know, even hear all these different voices and try and transcribe it, it was absolutely not the right way to go. So it soon became three. Oh, oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Mom? <laughs> I actually know, I'm actually curious about this. Um, when uh, I was a little girl, um, I you kept all of your books in my bedroom, no less. And it was in, actually in Brooklyn in my bedroom, and, and talk was in there. But I wasn't allowed to read it, which furthermore made me 
Read it. Read it. <laughs> so I remember reading two sentences, and I was absolutely horrified. And I think I was about eight or something. And I didn't even know what I was really reading, but I knew it was, you know. And so much has happened within my generation. What age do you think it's okay for someone to <laughs> pick up a book? Well, I mean, you know, I, I pick up a book and act as a 15-year-old because that's where 15-year-olds oh, are at now. Oh, of and course. this is, to me, not as racy as it was. What would you back say? Then. Unfortunately, like, kids are... You know, I mean, even why even young adult literature now deals yeah. with everything. Because you have girls, as everyone keeps saying, girls out there, and you know, there's eleven-year-olds, twelve-year-olds that are watching this. So it really has changed so much. So I just remember growing up and not being able to read it, and <laughs> that would be so different now in in a family if, if it was you know. Different. That's all I have to say. As long as they're reading. As long as they're reading. <laughs> reading is fundamental. Should I, should I introduce you? This is one of the characters in the book. When you read it, the guys that they were describing as wearing French clothes, mustache, dancing. There he is. <laughs> Timothy so Collin, a.k.a. Mike Todd. I was just back for about two years in Paris. Yeah. Something you said about the dance thing was very significant. Oh, you were a great dancer. <laughs> <laughs> and probably still are. Well, the thing is, I could not dance. No, I remember you practiced in front of a mirror. Well, I, <laughs> I could not follow steps of any kind, so I could not do the foxtrot. Right. So this was anything. a good thing for you, then. Well, what happened is in the bars in New York, the artist bars, people would start dancing. And some of the artist bars, especially one I went to, started changing over to a Negro bar, a black bar. And I, I don't know, I just stayed because they were dancing so beautifully, so fabulously, and the music just came coursing into my body. Wow. And I absorbed it by osmosis. And one day I got up and I could do it. No, you were right. Say, oh, you're doing the Philadelphia so and so, which I didn't know what that was. But it was, it was the freedom yeah. of dancing. Yeah. And then not having to be tied exactly. to someone. Exactly. And uh, I mean, I was never a, a leader, so. <laughs> I hate the leaves. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah. Right. I was curious of the, the the fiction aspect. Like once you had gone through the transcripts and then had this book, um, upon reflection, did you feel like it there was it was kind of what really happened or did you see a kind of like your bias in it or um, and then yeah like the line between truth and fiction and if you did feel there was an element of fiction that you had created or well, as I as I was shaping it, I you know obviously wanted to be coherent in some way, and um, I mean it has a a balanced first chapter and last chapter. First chapter she's packing for the summer. Last chapter she's unpacking. Um, so those kinds of rhythms developed, um, but I didn't see. I I, I saw it as reality because this is the way we spoke to each other. I mean, there was an incredible closeness that I think you can only have when you're in your 20s, you know, after you're really involved with other people. But this was very familial and very any, unjudgmental, and anybody could just say anything. And, and then I guess as a follow-up, um, 
I was thinking like Rich came first, the medium or the message, and so like when you had that epiphany in the apartment, were you remembering how beautiful the conversations were in the Hamptons the year before, and that you had to record them, or did you see the tape recorder and I mean, you know, and say like, oh, what would be the best thing I could tape? You know. I had been in the Hamptons the summer before, but much more on my own. I didn't have pe friends there as much. Um, you know, it's hard to put myself back there, but uh, you know, the, the, it was it was the tape recorder that impelled the idea, the concept of taping. Yeah. Right. And uh, I had a really nice experience. A friend of mine was with Leonard Cohen one night. And she called me from wherever they were, probably stoned. Mm -hmm. And she said, Leonard want, wants to say something to you. So he came on, I've never met him. He came on the phone and he said, um, I read this book in Greece, I read it out loud. And I had tried to do a taped book once and I decided it couldn't be done. And you did it. So that was one of the highlights of mine. <laughs> anyway. It, it, it got very diverse responses. I mean, a lot of people hated it, a lot of people really liked it. Um, and this time around, it's, it's just much more positive and people are much more accepting. I mean, so far it's been just great. <laughs> Do you still have all the tapes? Oh, yeah. But you can imagine what shape they're in. They're, they're exposed tapes because it was the reel-to-reel thing. Um, I had one professionally mastered or whatever you call it, and it ha you could, I couldn't tell what was on it, and it turned out to be not a very good one. So I just bought a reel-to-reel -reel player on eBay, and I'll listen to some more and see if they're worth preserving. Did you transcribe everything? Well, I certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> it was really... By typewriter, right? Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> <laughs> like when they, when they say in the book, dialing the phone, you know. Then <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned Andy Warhol and the tapes that he was doing. Um, was this an influence and if... if so, I mean, could you sort of talk a bit about how yours varied in a way because what he was doing was like uncut. Yeah. Well, that's what it was. I think I was more influenced by his films where he would just have the, the camera on Henry Gelseller for, what, eight hours or something, smoking a cigar not moving. That kind of reality. Could you say a bit more about what that what you saw in that that sort of related to what you were doing? It it was just a general feeling. It wasn't specifically, you know, it was just all of these things that were happening around me at one time. Um, <coughs> that like documentary film, these really realistic, like the Maisels brothers. Um, when they were at that time doing the Bible salesman film, and I actually had a conversation with Albert Maisels, and we sort of felt like we were doing the same thing and aiming at the same kind of reality. 
this was the, that they were trying to actually capture a story, but with Warhol it was more like it was just whatever happened, right. happened. Well, um, sure, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But with you, it was more that you were trying to relate a story, wasn't it? Well, I was hoping it would become a story. Yes. I, I knew something, some structure would come. Right. Do you have any thoughts on why the theory that like New York is the best talking town in the US? There's no doubt. I was like, ah. I that wouldn't have been made in LA. Or... Oh, no. <laughs> no. So, yeah, that's something that you know. It's a very New York y, art worldy, you know, a certain familiar. I was going to say Jewish, but he, the guy was, is Italian. <laughs> but yeah, but that is sort of equivalent. Um, no, it's I think very specifically New York, and at that time with all the the uh, dependence on therapists in a very different way than now. You know, people went for years and years and years, and they talked about their therapist. And in this book, the therapist was there on the beach. <laughs> My therapist, and we talk about him, and <laughs> we'd be at the same parties. Um, I mean, the book, in a way, is one big therapy session. You know, just people. Uh, expressing their every feeling. Marsha, was this, this group, this video, more out there? <laughs> well, it's interesting you called me Marsha. <laughs> it's only recently that I've admitted that. Okay. Um, it's a more affluent video, I would say. Well, these, the people on the beach, not as much as it is now. It was strictly an artist's beach. It was called the artist's beach, the beach that we were on. And it was almost all um, sort of the abstract expressionist generation, the young, the second wave people. But there were writers there too, Dr. O was there. Um, but, you know, artists weren't making a lot of money then. Some of them are now. Mm -hmm. Did you ever like listen to any parts of the conversations you thought this might be maybe too controversial to put in it, and you left it out? Was there anything like that? <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff left. You know, of course, yeah. more stuff was left out than in. But I, I wasn't thinking that way. I mean, it hit me when the book was coming out, and that my parents were going to read it, <laughs> and, I, and I was working at a pretty conventional place, and. Uh, I actually thought I might lose my job. What was your job? I was at Sotheby's uh, doing public relations. Or actually, I was editing an auction magazine. Did they notice? In fact, the the British head of the American division asked me if he could buy the manuscript. Mm -hmm. So it was a big turnaround. And and even the most conventional people there said, you know, this isn't my scene, but it's really interesting. So I worried in vain. I'm sure there were people who were thinking things they weren't telling me. But and your parents? My mother? I just wrote a little piece about this in the Paris Review. My mother immediately went into therapy. Like, in seconds. She was horrified. She was not in tears, but... She said, oh, I was hoping you'd write a beautiful book. <laughs> she was so disappointed. 
My father, on the other hand, never read the book, but he carried it around, showed it to his friends. <laughs> Look at this nice picture. Oh, I have the original one here. I should, what did I do with that one? Um, and his friends read it and said, do you realize what's in this book? <laughs> and he said, look at the nice picture. This was what it was then. This is what I was then. Um, but I, I had this one wonderful great aunt, which my sister will attest to, who was a very conservative person. And she called me up and she said, um, you know, this is not a book that I can understand. It's a generation I can't understand. But if anybody in the family gives you any trouble, have them call me. Which was one of the most wonderful things. So, Aunt Pauline. So you became a celebrity? Did I become a celebrity? When you read the book? No. <laughs> the book did not sell that well. I was a teeny bit of a celebrity in London because it was much more popular in London. Even though there was a clergyman in, London, in England who um, petitioned to ban the book, keep it off library shelves, but he, would, he, he didn't win. Um, no. How much later did Erica John do her book? I think 10 years, maybe? Yeah. Do you know what year? Yeah, I think it was the 70s. Yeah. Derek. Since it was so New York based, why did you think it did better in London? I don't know. Uh, it just got picked up by some people. Did you know Giant Joan Bakewell had a, yeah. a TV oh, yeah. show? And she just really liked it and she made a big party, invited all the cultural people. I don't know. Just well, you know, when the film Shadows, when that came out, the America take, took no notice of it, yeah. and it was first recognized. In oh, London really? That's interesting. In the, in the early '60s, huh. and it, that was where it sort of began. So, oh, that's very it's, interesting. And that was, you know, very New York based. Yeah. That is. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's it, there well, was something maybe in New York, London. London yeah. Uh, that in the yes. The, really caught on to these things. Right. Well, that also happened in music, didn't it? With Jimi Hendrix, not known here, and then it was because of his fame in Britain. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.